Hi guys, welcome back. This is Beth. It's episode 83 at the True Crime B&B. Today I am just one B, so it's just me alone. And if you hate solo episodes, it's your chance to bow out before I get started on my book on tape. I have a story for you today that comes from Framingham, Massachusetts, and this is the case of Sharon Galligan. Parents Paul and Eileen Galligan had a dream of a child. Their little girl Sharon was born April 7, 1969, in Framingham, Massachusetts. She was smart, kind, loving, thoughtful, truthful, and loved by everyone. She was raised in a household where both parents had been psychology majors, and their focus was on using their abilities to help however they were able, in whatever capacity they were able. They passed those values on to little Sharon. Sharon Galligan grew up an only child and graduated in 1987 from Framingham High School. She had been popular and lively, was a good student, was liked by everyone. She was athletic, played sports. She was close to both of her parents and she was academically gifted and carried a perfect 4.0 grade point average. At 20 years old, Sharon was attending the University of Massachusetts as a junior, studying psychology. She was a research assistant and teaching assistant in the psych department, where at the end of fall semester, when everyone else headed home for the Christmas break, she stayed a day late on campus to help grade papers before the end-of-term grades were finalized. Her work ethic was excellent, She was considered to be a shining star in the psych department, and she always completed what she needed to do before she would consider herself done. She never cut corners. After she finished her TA duties on the evening of Monday, December 18, 1989, she stopped off at the Chi Omega sorority house where she lived before heading back out to pick up a few more Christmas gifts at the local mall. She had asked if any of her Chi Omega sisters wanted to go with her to the mall, but no one needed to go, so she went alone. She normally would have been home at her parents' house already by this date, but in order to finish up her commitments and errands, she just hadn't gone yet. Her plan was to take off to get back to her parents' house after she had finished all of her running around. She was ready to get home to Sudbury, Massachusetts, and get started on her Christmas break, because when the next semester began in just a few weeks... She was scheduled for a study abroad semester in Sevilla, or Seville, Spain. Sharon drove by herself to the Hampshire Mall in Hadley, Massachusetts. Sharon felt fairly at home at the mall since she had a part-time job working at the balloon kiosk, but she was not scheduled on that Monday. This was just a shopping trip. She arrived around 8 o'clock p.m. on one of the shortest days of the year, so by the time she got to the mall it was several hours after dark. Sharon parked her blue Dodge Colt about 50 yards from an entrance in a fairly well-lit parking space. She went into three or four stores, purchasing a few final Christmas gifts, finishing her shopping just before 10 p.m. when the mall closed. She then left the mall and returned to her car outside in the cold night. As she arrived back at her car, she might have noticed a man sitting in the car next to hers. But in 1989, we didn't immediately think of danger if someone was in the car next to ours. Now if we see someone parked in the car next to ours, we think they're about to snatch us and throw us into a trafficking ring. But back then we didn't think that way. We just went out, nodded, went about our business. Sharon would have opened her passenger side car door and started to place her packages inside. Because we know what happened next, we can make an assumption that as her back was turned to him, the man opened his door and suddenly crowded into Sharon, and she would have turned towards him as he startled her. Maybe she thought it was an accident or that he'd slipped on the ice. 
Maybe she chuckled the way we do when we've been startled and feel a little bit foolish for falling for a jump scare. But this man didn't accidentally bump into her. This wasn't a jump scare. This man had a knife. Before she could really grasp what was going on, this stranger began to stab Sharon in her neck, through her parka, in her abdomen, in her chest, and Sharon still was able to scream. Scream for help, screamed in pain. The man tried to cover her mouth, and she bit down hard on his hand. Sharon fought him. She desperately tried to push him off of her. She tried to squirm backwards away from him into her car, but she was injured. She couldn't move very much in the front seats of the car. He still had the knife, and he continued to stab her. In the process of trying to overpower Sharon as she kicked and scratched at him, he shoved her further backwards into the car from the passenger side, pushing her as far in as he could, trying to get her out of sight in case anyone happened to come by during this horrific assault on this young woman. Sharon's head ended up nearly all the way into the foot space near the pedals on the driver's side of the car, which, reminder to non-U.S. listeners, is on the left side in the U.S., Sharon's back went across the middle console and her legs were angled upwards on the passenger side. One foot rested against the passenger window above the headrest. Sharon stopped fighting and lay still in this awkward position. The assailant closed her passenger door and walked quickly away across the parking lot towards a nearby McDonald's. The car sat in the spot overnight and all the next day with Sharon's legs in view to anyone that was paying attention but it was 6.30 p.m. the next day, December 19th, when a woman and her young son first paid any attention to the fact that there was a foot leaning against the passenger window of the little blue Dodge Colt. The woman thought it was odd, so she went to look closer. When she saw Sharon's body upside down in the car, she immediately went to mall security and told them about it. She didn't know what was going on, but something was wrong. Mall security called the police. By this time, it had been over 20 hours since Sharon had been attacked, and her body, in the frigid Massachusetts winter, was frozen. Police later discovered that at least three people had noticed her legs sticking upside down in the passenger side, but they all assumed she was fiddling with her car radio, so no one had thought to report what they had seen until they found out later about the murder. The crime scene was taped off with a perimeter that prevented some shoppers and employees from getting to their cars to leave the mall. Getting Sharon out of the car was delicate because her body was frozen. Police did deduce that the extreme position Sharon was found in must have resulted from the fierceness of her struggle to survive. They tried to gauge why she'd been attacked. She was still fully dressed. She had not been sexually assaulted. Her purse and personal items were still with her in the car. The Christmas gifts she had purchased at the mall were still there as well. So it had not been a robbery. It had not been a sexual assault. Who would have senselessly killed this vibrant young woman? And why? Once she had been extricated from the car and her body was taken to the morgue for her autopsy, it was determined that Sharon had been stabbed over ten times. The most likely fatal wound was one to her chest which had cut several blood vessels to her heart. Police asked the public for leads on anyone who might have known or come in contact with Sharon in the last few days. She had been dating a young man. She had about 50 sorority sisters who lived with her at the Chi Omega house. She worked with people in the psych department and at the mall. Over 300 calls came in with potential leads. Police questioned as many people as they were told about and yet all of the leads dried up. 
no one seemed to be a good suspect for this crime. There didn't seem to be anyone who would have wanted to do this to Sharon. No one could fathom how anyone could do this unthinkable thing to such a beloved person. Police publicly wondered if it might have been a random act of violence. They warned local women to be extra cautious, to park close to the entrance, to go places with a friend if they could. Police came right out and said, if the crime had been random, it would make it extremely hard to solve. It became public speculation as to whether the Hadley police had been making enough routine patrols around the mall. And if they had been sufficient, how had the police not noticed Sharon's foot projecting upside down from the passenger seat? Nearly 400 people turned out for Sharon's funeral, which was held the day before Christmas Eve, December 23, 1989. Twenty-four of Sharon's Chi Omega sorority sisters lined the aisle while her coffin was transported to the front of St. Jeremiah's Church. For many of these young women, this was the first person that they loved or that they knew who had passed away. No doubt the emotional suffering and trauma were only made worse by the gruesome and terrible way in which she was taken from them. The pews were filled with mourners, and Reverend Joseph Quigley, the university chaplain, spoke to them, saying, quote, We have to mourn the passing of this beautiful young woman. The tough part is that we will miss her presence. But somewhere along the line, we have to get mad that some brute could terrorize the community. Of course there was anger, but there was also fear. If this had not been a targeted attack, despite the despair over losing Sharon, the people of the community felt fear for their own safety, too. There were a spate of unusual and chilling events that had taken place at or near the mall, and these were looked into as to any possible connection to Sharon's murder. For example, a man had been seen asking for help in starting his car, which supposedly was broken down around the same time as Sharon's death. Several employees at the mall had been receiving obscene phone calls, and they were quite shaken up about it, especially after this happened. Another woman had been accosted by a man who threatened her in her car. Police investigated these leads and several other odd occurrences, but ultimately found no connection to the crime against Sharon. When a year later a woman came forward with a piece of information that she had come to believe might have been her witnessing the murder of Sharon, she underwent hypnosis by the police to try to get the most specific information she could provide. She had thought she was seeing an argument with raised voices between a couple, and the man had abruptly walked off towards a nearby McDonald's. Under hypnosis, she provided a detailed description of this man. The man she had seen was described as a white man with a slender build, a thin face, and a thin nose. He had short, light-colored hair, was in his 20s, and was between five foot eight and five foot ten tall. He was wearing a long dark coat and a dark ski hat. When this woman assisted a sketch artist to produce a composite sketch of the suspect, the police got hundreds more telephone calls from people who thought they knew who it could be. But again, none of these new leads led the case any further. In February 1991, William J. Schumann, being held in the Hampshire County Jail awaiting trial on arson charges, confessed to the murder of Sharon Galligan. The fire he had been charged with starting was at the Northampton Area Mental Health Service Building because it turned out he carried a grudge against mental health workers. He claimed he had met Sharon on the campus of UMass, where she attended, and upon finding out that she was studying psychology, he stated that, quote, When she told me she was majoring in psychology, that was enough for me to hear. She would have grown up to be a torturer and murderer, 
In fact, she was already playing her trade while in college. Part of his statement was also that, quote, I didn't want the ring and that fucking dog, end quote. In addition to the weird, erroneous comments about a ring and a dog, other inconsistencies caused police to rule him out as a real suspect. The case went cold for the next three years until in 1993 a woman came forward. Her name was Denise Seconder, and she was the ex-wife of a man named Kenneth R. Mitchell, whom she had divorced in 1981. Kenneth's name had been brought up in the early months of the investigation, but police had not been able to make any connection between him and Sharon. It did turn out that Kenneth closely resembled the sketch that had been done by the sketch artist. Denise told police that four days after the murder in 1989, Kenneth Mitchell had come to her and put out his left hand. The hand had a distinct human bite mark on it. Kenneth Mitchell had told Denise that he had gotten the bite injuries in a struggle and that he had been the perpetrator of the random killing at the Hampshire Mall. Denise said that Mitchell had been experiencing severe grief over his mother's illness at that time and that he had had thoughts about killing himself. He had been what she called, quote, mad at God and said that he wanted to get even. He had explained to Denise that he had taken a knife and had gone to the mall planning to take his own life at the mall. He told her he had parked his car in the lot and sat in it. A while later, Sharon had approached her own car, which by chance had been parked next to where Kenneth Mitchell had come in and parked his car. At that moment, he said he had decided to take out his wrath on her instead of on himself. After telling Denise this information, Mitchell told her that if she went to police, he would do the same to her. Denise did tell her second husband, Walter Edgett, what Kenneth had confessed, and later, Kenneth had actually told Walter himself. Fearing for their own safety, Denise and Walter promised to keep the secret if Kenneth would just leave them alone. Later, it was discovered that two other people also knew about his guilt. All four of these people kept this secret until 1993, when Kenneth moved away from town, and Denise finally contacted the police to clear her conscience about what she knew. On January 14, 1993, Kenneth Mitchell was taken in for questioning, denying any involvement at all in the crime. Without grounds to hold him, he was sent home, and a follow-up interview was scheduled for the next day. Kenneth Mitchell didn't appear for the follow-up interview. He disappeared. As the police hunted for him, Mitchell knew his time was up, and after hiding out for six days, checked into a motel room where he broke a bottle and used the shards of glass to slit his own wrists. Mitchell left a six-page suicide note admitting what he had done to Sharon Galligan. He said he hadn't targeted Sharon. It had been completely random. Anyone who had been parked next to him, anyone who had happened to find themselves near him that night, might have met the same fate. The note was written to make him seem as if he had been disturbed and distressed, angry at the illness which his mother had been struggling with, and making him appear sympathetic was certainly the intent. Expressing some form of remorse, his note read, quote, What was I thinking? What good would killing her do me? These and other questions I cannot answer. What I do remember is, she did scream. When I heard how many times I had stabbed her, I could not believe it. Police expressed doubt that he had taken his own life out of remorse, but more likely because he knew he was caught. The notes were maybe on some level intended to give answers to Sharon's family, but more likely to make himself seem less malicious. And I'm going to go one step further with that. I think he never went to the Hampshire Mall with the intent to kill himself. 
I think he went there to take out his frustrations and anger at the world on someone he thought no one could associate with him. When he really wanted to take his own life at the end, he went to a motel room where it was quiet, where he wouldn't be interrupted, where he didn't even have a weapon with him. The night he killed Sharon, he went to a mall just before Christmas, when it's the busiest that it is all year, parked in a well-lit spot in the middle of the parking lot, directly next to another car rather than in an isolated spot towards the outer edges of the lot. He sat there until the mall was about to close, knowing that whoever had come there in that car would be coming back soon. So I call bullshit on his whole woe-is-me suicide note. The whole spur-of-the-moment-I-didn't-really-plan-to-do-this suicide note. Yes, he might have been shell-shocked afterwards when he found out that he'd stabbed her over ten times. But I don't believe for a second that he had planned to take his own life there at the mall. I think he had gone there looking for a victim who couldn't be associated with him. As for people who knew him, it was a classic case of the quiet man who seemed courteous and helpful to the colleagues he'd worked with for 13 years at the Zero Corporation. They couldn't understand it and said there was nothing about him that would have made them suspect such a darkness inside of him. But if he seemed the same after this murder as he had seemed before this murder, that only reinforces that what he did was really part of him all along. And it makes me wonder if he ever did anything else like that at any other time in his life, either before or after what he did to Sharon. Framingham High School, Sharon's alma mater, set up an annual Sharon Galligan Memorial Scholarship for $2,000 towards academic continuance, awarded to a female senior who had demonstrated academic capability, financial need, and service to school and community. So I'm glad that her school is keeping her name alive and focused on the spirit of things at which Sharon excelled. The world would have been a better place if Sharon had had a chance to live out her life. I will post some photos of Sharon on my Instagram and I hope you'll come to find them there. I thank you again for being here with me for another Just One B. And that, y'all, is about all I have for you today. I'll see you, my lovely crime family, in two weeks. Love ya. Bye. Hi guys, I didn't have very many in the way of bloopers today, so I thought I would just share with you my very first bad review. I got a two-star Apple review, and I'm going to read it with the appropriate level of drama. Two stars. Reading scripts! Although the reader punctuates and pauses appropriately, this is like listening to a Book on tape! Books on tape, B&B.